like it just sort of depends on the mood. I think mm -hmm. uh, Rachel nailed it. I think I, if, if you really want somebody to go, what just happened to me? <laughs> I think it's the third movement. It's like I was steamrolled. That's violinist and composer Earl Manian. He's a New York composer who was recently commissioned to write a brand new violin concerto for Rachel Barton Pine. And this commission was brought about by conductor Tito Munoz, who is also featured on the album. We got together to talk about the album and Rachel Barton Pine's upcoming performance in Phoenix. I'm Melissa Green. Welcome to another episode of Heart of the Arts. Cause like guys like Randy Rhodes, right, and like all all these all these mm -hmm. sort of shredders, mm -hmm. and like even like if you look at an Iron Maiden song, right, like if you just take a look at Iron, like for example, like you know the song Hallowed, I don't know, you don't know it, but there's a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name. Okay. Um, it's basically if you listen to it and you just kind of like just take out the drums, it's basically a, a it it could it's a straight ripoff of like something from La Estra Armonico, like one of the Vivaldi sort of mm. concerto sets. Yeah. You know, you've got a fortspinung, you've got a circle of fifths, but moving from the tonic to the dominant, and then you kind of live in the dominant for a little while, and then you kind of go back to the tonic, and everybody's happy. <laughs> so is so, Rachel joining us today? You know what? Let me text her. All right, I'm going to do it. Hey, just want to double check you're coming on. You know, it's funny because I'm 5'1", and I'm smaller, and I know you did violin, but my guitar professor was kind of a baker guy, just built thicker, and he always called his hands sausage fingers. And he said he had a more difficult time playing or, you know, just forming like an A chord or something because he's like, I got to squish all my fingers down and get them just right, which is interesting because a lot of people I talk to are like, oh, I have too small of hands to play. And I'm like, it's not about length. It's about stretch because my hands are tiny. I'm just a small person. And well, I'm kind of the worst of both worlds because I'm also very small, but I'm also very, mm -hmm. very thick. Mm. You know, I took the 23 and me thing like I was I was hoping that I was Mongolian just because, you know, like I like metal and I kind of like it. What's more brutal than being kind of like Mongolian? Really, you know what I mean? Like, hold on. Rachel just said, oh, I got my time zones wrong. Knew yeah. this would happen eventually. Please apologize and tell her I'll be there in like one minute. The wishing I was Mongolian. And, I, yeah. and so I'm not Mongolian at all. OK. But one thing that I did find out, which to answer your question, is that like so I have these sausage fingers, but I'm really small. But it's because I have like this weird genetic thing where my muscles like are the same as apparently Olympic athletes. I'm not an Olympic athlete at all. Right. Mm. But like they, it's this super thick like whatever it's thicker than normal so yeah. like i just have they're like wide and small but i stretch yeah. that's that's actually how i get around the instrument all the time too so it's the same with me i i kind of like you know widen out and stuff but then i think i also uh incorporate like what big people have to do where like i have to kind of like squish my fingers in like when i'm up in the nosebleed areas of the violin there's a lot of like replacing that goes on, like nearly replacing. You know what mm. I mean? Like where you're like just just the tiniest bit sharp or tiniest bit flat. So it's almost like you replace a finger. Hello. I love big guitar. Oh, hi, Rachel. I'm hi, so Rachel. sorry. We've been having so many different interview scheduling emails swirling around. And oh, I was afraid that it would happen one of these days that I wrote down the East Coast instead of the central time zone time. And yeah, I guess you got it's... the hot potato. So I'm very sorry. <laughs> oh, but... no, it's fine. We're just going to continue this conversation. So we've got a fun little connection because I interviewed you, you a year ago and you were talking about this album and Tito Munoz and how you actually premiered 
covered the piece here in Phoenix back in 2017, correct? Yeah, and I'm returning to the Phoenix Symphony November 18th and 19th. Earl and I were talking about how it, um, we were talking about, you know, some classically trained rock musicians and how me being from a classical guitar background, like a lot of guys in college, um, I say guys because I was the only female in the department for those four years, but they loved metal you know, and shredding and classical guitar was just like this whole new beautiful world that opened <laughs> up to them. I know a little bit, you know, about your taste and you're kind of like, I feel like you're marrying your two favorite genres together here with... Actually, actually, my, well, two two of my favorite genres for sure. My second favorite genre is Chicago blues and metal is my third and mm. Scottish traditional is my fourth. But in any case, close <laughs> enough. How did you and Earl connect? Because you premiered this piece back in 2017, which I'm like, oh, that was three years ago. I'm like, no, it was like seven years ago. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, everything still needs an asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Basically, there are only a few electric heavy metal violinists in the U.S. and Earl and I are two of them. And I had been a fan of his electric um, metal band for a long time, Resolution 15, which is actually a really cool ensemble because there are no guitars in the group. Um, he takes mm. on all of those duties. And um, I knew that he was the main songwriter for the group and really liked his music. And so I wanted something that he had written that I could use in normal classical recitals. So I commissioned him to write an unaccompanied piece for me. Ended up premiering it in a recital, of all classical, normal recital yeah. in New York City. And um, Tito Munoz, the music director of Phoenix Symphony, who is an old school friend of Earl's, oh, cool. um, was in the audience that night and was so impressed with what Earl had done in this um, classical composition um, that it ended up that he commissioned Earl to write a violin concerto for the Phoenix Symphony and me. That's so cool. How how was that experience when you learned, Earl, that you were like being asked to write this piece and work with these amazing musicians who've been played on classical stations for years? Well, it's com it was completely surreal, <laughs> uh, you know, like like it wasn't happening. But of course it was happening, you know, like, you yeah, know, it's, like, you know, unexpected. You kind of just try to do the best you can in a situation, <laughs> right? Like, Well, it's funny. I interview a lot of composers and a lot of them say like, and this is not to like downplay, but sometimes I, I think that, oh my gosh, this is the perfect person to do this. And they're like, well, I, I sometimes I take a gig and I, I really hope for the best because I don't know if I'm cut out for it. And I'm always shocked to hear that from people of your caliber. Wow. So I'm going to totally agree with Pantheon of composers who actually said something along those lines. Well, John I, I Williams got... said it to Steven Spielberg when he was composing Schindler's List. He's like, I don't think I'm. I did because I didn't go to school for composition. You know, it was I'm a violinist also not not like Rachel, but, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm, a, you know, I, not on her caliber, but I'm a trained violinist. Right. So, yeah. You both like, shred in right. your own so, ways. Say, you know, that, that's kind of like my my identity or whatever I choose to ident identify with, right? So mm -hmm. so when asked to write the piece, I mean, I've heard of, I, like, I knew of Rachel also, like, you know, I'm a violinist. So when, it was actually very charming when she called me. She goes, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you know who I am. And in my head, I'm like, listen, I'm a violinist. Everybody knows who you are. <laughs> right. I don't, know, <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what kind. What are you asking me? So it was it was like, you know, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but really it was kind of like a dream come true. Right. Because mm -hmm. like I, I definitely want to like like I do. I, I was writing already, but I was writing only for my metal band, you know? Yeah. 
And so, you know, Rachel's first ask, it was a little out of the box, but not that much out of the box, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it was definitely doable. Like So, like, it, it, that 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 didn't really... Uh, it, I was very excited to do it, but that didn't, like, actually, like, scare me too much. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I, it was still... Like, I was like, no, I, I could figure that out. I mean, like, I'll, you know, like, it's, it's I'll just kind of like, it's like I'm writing for my band, but not. But, like, I know Yazai Sonatas. I know, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. familiar with Bach, Sonatas and Partitas. Like, there's a whole rich history of, you know, unaccompanied works. So I kind of already had a, ta- it wasn't like I was coming from nothing. Oh, yeah. Know? And there's, you know, it's approached, like, the Western classical music traditions, but just, like, very virtuosic right so you know so you have have that and then i think the concerto for me was much more of a daunting oh boy kind of <laughs> kind of a kind of an ask so i love what you said in the record release party when you're like okay now what do i do with an oboe <laughs> like as you're writing it i know sometimes musicians are you know they're both in new york so they can visit each other and work through something so how did that yeah when i live in chicago of course Hence the time zone confusion. <laughs> um, uh, but it's easy enough to come to New York. And it was actually great to be part of the process of just like experimenting with stuff. You know, you read about these historic collaborations, whether it's Elgar and the um, concertmaster of the London Phil or Brahms and Joachim and stuff like that. Right. And, and here I was getting to witness, you know, the the conception and development of this violin concerto which you know 300 years from now people will be studying and you know it's like you're part of living history and just seeing Earl's process and seeing what he came up with it was it was absolutely fascinating and just you know so impressive. Did you guys kind of speak similar language in regards to like Earl, I don't know exactly what your um, composition approach is. Maybe you've never written for the oboe, but are you thinking voice leading, and are you think, or are you thinking more of just sounds and not necessarily in key signatures? Um, I took out all of, I dug out all of my old theory books. I've only had one composition class ever in my life, and it was an elective when I was an undergrad. And I'm going to mention because I actually had a really lovely time giving a guest lecture in his class. It was actually a nice full circle moment last night. I went to Queens College. Okay. And I gave a I gave a guest lecture for a Professor Edward Smalldone, who's a composer as well. But mm. you know, he taught the one composition class I went to that was an elective. <laughs> anyway, the the point is is that like I went and dug out all of my old theory books, you know, Carl Schachter and whatnot, and you know, yeah. like kind of like reminded myself of like what exactly first species, second species, third, whatever, fifth species counterpoint was. And then I also mm-hmm. went and uh, like took out from the library and a combination of that and IMSLP, like a bunch of scores of symphonic works that I knew I really liked. I pulled out, um, what I pulled out? I pulled out Rite of Spring. I pulled out uh, Mussorgsky Ravel, mm-hmm. uh, pictures at an exhibition. I pulled out La Mer. Uh, mm-hmm. I, did, I did a bunch of these scores where I was like, I just want to see what they do and how I like these sounds. How do they do it? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. It was like a weird crash course, crash, crash compositional doctorate. Like, mm. you know, yeah. You know, and you know, it was a weird un, unofficial composition doctorate class, I feel. Well, that's fascinating. That's like incredible that you could just sort your brain out and pick the things and be like, okay, here we go. So what in oh sorry. 
Oh no! I, well, the last thing I was going to say was that, um, and I mentioned this actually last night in this in this class. I didn't realize it until now when I got asked a question like that. I'm like, the thing is, is though, like we all, I'm, I'm still a a a, a train, like a, a school. I went to school, so like I had the frameworks already, kind of like I understand what a concerto form is. Like I understand, mm-hmm. you know, at least there's so much more to understand. But like I did receive training in knowing Western European classical forms mm, so, right yeah even though i didn't do it myself and i played it all the time right so yeah. like i i was already aware of like a structure that like i either wanted to accept or reject mm-hmm. depending on what i wanted depending on like what i felt was right in the moment like would i accept this or would i reject this aspect of okay well i have to go to the dominant well i don't feel like going to the dominant right mm-hmm. now so i won't but I know it's- <laughs> right so, yeah so is that um I mean, I feel like that's kind of necessary when you're writing a concerto that's kind of like influenced by metal and punk, like learning the rules and then breaking them in your own way is. Well, and then that's the thing. Earl was literally inventing some things that had never been done by a symphony orchestra before. I can't tell you how many people keep commenting that this concerto is like nothing they've ever heard. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of awesome that classical music as this umbrella for so many different kinds of of communication you know is still you know capable after all these centuries of expanding its horizons and um one of the things that earl did was there's a particular kind of drum beat um and that sounds like a silly word to say but it's something mm-hmm. that the um that the rock drums do in um death metal called a blast beat and okay. He wanted that effect and the impact of it and to translate it into symphonic forces because we decided we were just going to use the normal orchestra, no added drum kit, no amplification, none mm-hmm. of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, but to take the essence of of metal and hardcore and put it into the symphony orchestra. And he had to uh, figure out how to do that through trial and error. And um, and then, you know, like, like I said, nobody had done that before. So it was it was amazing. And thank God for ASU to pay the, as far as what Rachel's saying, mm-hmm. um, that blast beat that I tried to do that. And there were a bunch of beats that I wanted to like throw in into the, into the concerto and thank God for ASU because mm. um, Tito has a relationship with, you know, Arizona state university mm-hmm. and they got us a workshop uh, sort of performance opportunity. And the three of us, you know, convened at ASU and Rachel played, you know, a early version of the, of the concerto. And I really got so many things wrong, you know, mm. like really wrong. Like, but I wouldn't have known like, cause like, you know, I'm like, just like looking at the score and then you're listening to like Sibelius MIDI, you know, if mm. I don't know who, if you know what that is. Sibelius yeah. is a music program and a computer that kind of like, you know, yeah. and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the MIDI, plays back this stuff and it sounds fine in the me of course it does because it's a computer yeah right and then you sit in the room and then rachel who's got a cannon right mm-hmm. she's yeah. got one of the best violins in the world not to mention obviously she's one of the best players in the world but she also has it's just this she's a force right and yeah. she's totally getting drowned out and then of course putting a kick drum and then a snare with played by two separate play- people playing this thing at 220 bpm two separate people playing like on like not next to each other even also and then it's just it was a muddy it was just a soup of mess 
and like it was just a and, and and it was drowning Rachel out, which is very very hard to do actually. Wow. But that's her power, you know. Yeah. She's got she plays with such power, but even that it was just too much. So I was like, if this writing is just not good, this writing is not right. And thank God for ASU that I had a chance to rework. So it was like Rachel said, a lot of this trial and error stuff. But I also in this situation had the chance to realize I was wrong and then fix it. Yes. I wanted to, of course, because we're here in Phoenix and um, we just started airing our Phoenix Symphony broadcast again, which we do every fall. So I wanted to ask about both of your relationships with Tito Munoz, who is also a violinist, because Earl, you said you, um, Rachel, you said you've known him for a long time. But Earl, did you say you went to, um, you met him in college? Okay, so for Tito, I met him in college. He was a already incredibly self-possessed 17-year-old who just came up to me and asked me, he says, well, I'm conducting, uh, you know, Firebird Suite, and uh, I heard you're a violinist, and I'd like you to play. And I'm like, who is this 40-year-old, like, asking me to play Firebird Suite? You know, so that was the beginning of our actual friendship. But really, I met him when he was 12, and I was uh, 18. So he, my, I, when I was 18, I was in a cover band called, uh, you know, I was in a cover band with a bunch of middle-aged dudes, and like, and they just kind of did like the sort of like Almond Brothers and you know whatever. Yes, stuff. yeah, I love Warren Haynes. So Clapton, Clapton, <laughs> Clapton sort cool. of like cover band. Yeah, and the the drummer was Tito's science teacher in 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 his middle school. Oh. and so we did this assembly, right? Mm-hmm. Did an assembly, and we played all our stuff, and then I I, I you know, and uh, at the end of the assembly, uh, you know. Tito's homeroom teacher comes up to me and says, you know, this is Tito Munoz. He's he's just starting to play the violin. He's really interested in your electric violin. Uh, can can he take a look at it? And I was like so rude. I'm like, yeah, no, sorry, can't, bye. And I just like, good luck uh, with your violin thing, but no, you can't see mine, and I got to go. And I was like packing it up right away, and I just left, oh. right? And uh, And – that that thing, like, you know, it was an incident that I forgot all about and Tito forgot all about also. And then one day when we were like in our in our, you know, late 20s, early 30s, he was helping me. He was helping me move, uh, move apartments. And Aww. I was driving a really crappy little van and he saw a cassette tape that said Bad Onion, which was my 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 the cover band with the middle aged <laughs> dudes when I was 18. Right. And he just flips out. He's like, it was you. It was you. You were in Bad Onion. It was you. And I'm like, yo, settle down. What are you talking about? It was me. Yeah, right. So whatever. Who cares? He goes, no, you don't understand. And then he told me the whole story. And then I remembered it also. And the reason why I was so rude, I was like, well, I couldn't tell you when you were 12. Like, so I was 18 and he was 12. Right. And I was like, well, the whole reason why I wouldn't show you my violin was because I would thought I'm going to blame it on me being a 18 year old idiot. But like, I thought I was all edgy by cutting out a picture of a nude woman mm-hmm. from a, from a, from a, you know, from like playboy or hustler, or whatever, like some, you know, adult magazine. Right. Sure. And I had pasted it to the back of my electric violin. Cause oh, you know, I'm like, just so edgy. <laughs> oh yeah. I've got one of those on the back of my Gwinnery. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> it sounds it was, like it you terrible. had that. Sounds like you had that angst like every every uh punk rocker should have yeah, at no, some I, point I, in their I, life i carved 
curse words into the back of my violin. So oh, whatever, moron. Anyway, so but that you know it was just kind of where I was at the time, and so obviously like this kid's twelve, and like now you know you know forty eight to forty two means nothing, right? Like the uh, yeah whatever. Oh yeah, Six-year age gap is nothing. But mm-hmm. when you're like eighteen and twelve, that's a big deal. Yes. right. Like really, really big deal. And so like I was like. I'm not going to show this 12-year-old kid at the school assembly this picture of this naked woman because I got to go. How do I get out of this terrible situation? And so, like, that's why I was just like, yeah, I, I can't talk to you. I got to go. Oh, that is so funny because, yeah, you, yeah he's having a totally different reality. <laughs> totally different reality. And we, I had no idea that he was going to be one of my best friends, like, later wow. on in life. That's so cool. Our audience is going to love to hear that. And, Rachel, you said you guys are old friends. So I met Earl at, Earl at the time that I commissioned him to write this oh, violin concerto. Oh, but yes, you know, he I, and I have have um, you know, we've collaborated with his orchestra with whatever concertos, Paganini, and um, I don't just I don't working remember. around with all the different orchestras yeah. you both have. Yeah, so, and, I, and actually, um, I'm going to be back with the Phoenix Symphony um, in November, middle of November. I think it's the 15th and 16th, or is it 18th and 19th? I'd have to look that up, but it's that weekend. Um, and I'm going to be doing the Florence Price Concerto, but actually it's going to be with a guest conductor. Uh, but it's always wonderful to return to Phoenix. And then in the spring, I'm going to be back at the MIM, which is always one of my um, absolute favorite things to do because you know you can spend a week and not even see everything in that museum. It's so just incredible. Yes. Um, Oh, we went to the MIM together, remember, Rachel? Oh, that was such an awesome time. Oh, yeah. A lot of people say that there's a really impressionable time in childhood, and it's usually adolescence, like 11, 12, 13, and that music at that time really sticks with you. Um, do you agree with that? Was it a different age for either of you? And if so, like, whatever really stuck with you? I don't know if there's one specific time from your childhood. Yeah, so for me, I first started listening to metal when I was 10. I got a transistor radio under the Christmas tree and started discovering what else was on the dial, all kinds of different genres. But I was particularly drawn to hard rock and metal. And then I found this, um, you know, kind of underground station at the end of the dial that would come on at 10 p.m. every night. And it was playing a lot of the thrash bands, Megadeth, Anthrax, Slayer. Um, early wow. Metallica, Pantera, and that stuff just really grabbed me. And I started going to shows um, every chance I got. And um, the energy and commitment and intensity of those artists from the stage was a huge influence on me as a classical performer, because of course, our emotional palette is much wider and more varied. But even if I'm expressing utter serenity, I still need to throw myself into it 100%. communicate it all the way to the person in the back of the hall. And that is really the influence that I got from these great bands um, in terms of, you know, just how the, you know, how the best of them are as performers. And then the music I thought had nothing to do with me as a musician. I thought I was, that I loved metal because it was so different from the thing that I was studying all day long. And it wasn't till later when I started playing some covers in my early twenties as part of my community engagement efforts to get new listeners out to the symphony. Um, then I started playing some of these covers in pubs or on rock stations. And then I'd play some Paganini or some Isai. And um, then I was like, wait a sec, this music, 
actually feels very substantive. And then I started meeting a lot of my favorite bands and they would talk about how classically influenced they were. So it's really quite awesome to have now what Earl's doing, you know, with classical inspired by metal because metal, the, you know, the more serious subgenres is inspired by classical. So mm-hmm. metal inspired by, or classical inspired by metal inspired by classical. It kind of comes full circle. It does. Yeah. Earl, what would you say was the time? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, I think I was a little older. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- uh, for me it was uh, let me think. Uh, I was around twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- some so like you know at the time you know kids were uh, some kid passed me a tape, <laughs> a cassette tape, mm-hmm. uh, which apparently is coming back, but I don't know. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, some some kid passed me a cassette tape, Metallica's Master of Puppets. Mm-hmm. So that like, you know, like and I took it home and like and like I put it in the cassette tape and like the even the, the it was like crazy. And then of course, mm-hmm. you know, the ending and all this laughing. <laughs> that kind of freaked me out too. But it was also <laughs> awesome. And like, you know, but I definitely that kind of like stayed with me for longer than maybe it was good. But 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 you mm-hmm. know, but it that that kind of really that was a huge thing for me. And then I also knew that like a lot of like my friends around the neighborhood, they were all into like this, you know, this music also, it was all similar or like, or inspired by like, we were all kind of participating in the subgenre of, of, of hardcore punk slash um, metal. So like we kind of had our own band, we kind of would form our own bands and we'd be terrible, but it kind of didn't matter. You know, like we would, yeah. we would listen stuff all the time and we would go to like underground sort of all ages shows that would routinely happen in like church basements, you know, or yes. uh, or like a VFW hall, you know, uh, yeah. you know some, or actually sometimes in a kid's basement. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. Or just like an abandoned small theater or I'm right. just going to mention this because you might laugh. I'd never really gone to like this a hardcore punk show, but because of I mentioned that record store I used to work at and um. In San Francisco, I went up there for like for the first time this summer and I saw the Circle Jerks. Do you know? Oh, nice. Yeah. That sure. was, I, I was a fish on a water just because I wanted to go have that experience and I'd never experienced. And it was an all ages show. I mean, I'm 34 now. So going to an all ages show, I was like, these kids, I think they're unwell. I don't know if they're all okay. And just, it was just a really interesting um, experience that I feel like. It was just kind of like I'm either going to go because the show was like sold out and I found one ticket. And um, yeah, I get that that environment you're describing. Well, think of, well, let me ask you that. You're the interviewer, but I'm going to ask you how what what did it feel like to you to be in that in there, like in there watching these kids like really tear it up? Oh, um, I mean, I, I've seen mosh pits and stuff like that, but it was it was really um interesting because they came out in you know the 80s that they had such a strong impact like I was just impressed like how Rachel was describing earlier like they got the crowd like so riled up and I just like everyone was so like diehard and so into it and just all different sorts of characters 
people getting that crazy about Barry White. No disrespect to Barry White. He was <laughs> right. He was music, so I you know, know you. I know you guys got to wrap it up here. So I just wanted to ask um, both of you about recording this, and you know, you premiered it here, and you're going to be visiting us with uh, looks like uh, Rachmaninoff, some masterpieces by Mozart, and then the Florence Price Violin Concerto Number no. Two, but. Uh, with this new album, can you talk, uh, just briefly mention the title and some of the movements? We talked about the virtuosity. The percussion obviously really stuck out to me. Um, can you explain the title and your favorite little nuggets? Dependent Arising is a Buddhist term. Um, it's basically the core concept of what Buddhism is, is that nothing exists independently of itself, that Everything arises and is connected. The inter- it's basically the interconnectedness of everything. Yeah. And all, all the things that you think you think you're in a, you know, you're absolutely not in a bubble. Even if you think you are, you're not. Everything you do affects everything and everything that happens affects you as yeah. well on, on all the levels. So that's the that's the title of uh, of the concerto. And um I guess, you know, I didn't describe it this way before. It, I don't think it's even in the program notes, but the more I think about it, it's actually, it's a, it's not exactly programmatic where it's definitely not, well, this is where the guy meets like this old sage and discovers that we are one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. It's definitely not. <laughs> I, that would not, interest me though. <laughs> it's not like blow by blow, mm-hmm. moment by moment. But I, what I did what I do kind of think about in hindsight is I actually think that the, the concerto is a sort of a, 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 a sonic picture of a, a hypothetical person's like dying process possibly. You know what I mean? Like, mm. so you have like the first movement grasping at the self. Right. And it's like the sort of like my ego, like what I want, what I need, I need this, I need this, I want this. And so like, I'm trying to show sort of like sonically that, anxiety of like what happens in all of our brains like when we are all consumed by uh, desire of anything you know food money whatever whatever right like anything like just desire uh the second movement is uh it's basically written by uh it's written in in the sense of like it's a meditation on grief uh more or less uh it would the the main theme kind of came to me when a good friend of mine died the day of his funeral uh, mm. We came home and I kind of had this thing in my head and I just kind of wrote it down. This is actually pre predated the concerto. So it was just sort of kicking around my hard drive mm. and I, I kind of pulled it out for this. And then um, the third movement is uh, the heart sutra. And that's um, that's a chant. And, and the heart sutra is basically loosely translated. It means gone, gone, uh, keep, you know, far, far gone, keep going until one reaches enlightenment until real until one cuts through delusion and the reason why i wrote it in this particular style mm-hmm. is it's also a very wrathful um movement and in buddhism wrath is not uh ego driven rage it's not like oh this dude cut me off on the highway now i'm going to run him off the road you know it's not that it's it's actually mm-hmm. it's the mom who sees her child about to touch you know, the hot stove and then slaps it, slaps her kid's hand and says, mm. hey, please don't do that, please. That's... So that's that's my summation. And I guess Rachel can talk about the part she makes is mad at me. About yeah. 
<laughs> no, it was beautiful because she was just talking about classical to, you know, metal and then classical. It always comes back around full circle. Yeah. And I love that, you know, I mean, I think you can listen to Earl's piece without knowing the movement titles and without knowing what those titles mean, but it certainly adds something to the experience to have a sense of the background. And um, yeah, it's just such an evocative piece. And, you know, I love that, you know, all these different elements of the composer are in there. And of course, you know, the fact that he wrote it for me, um, you know, he, yeah. it's, it's, def it's definitely never non-ergonomic on the instrument, but it definitely pushes the boundaries of the possible, or sometimes I say it goes to the edge of the possible, almost as if it's yeah. about to go over. It's one of the hardest things I've ever played. Not like I said, because there's anything awkward or, or unviolinistic about it, but it just, and it doesn't have Paganini tricks, right? There's no left-hand pizzicato or double-stop harmonics, but it's just, it's really fast and it's just really intense and you're flying all over the fingerboard and it's so satisfying, but boy, does it take a lot of practicing. That's violinist Rachel Barton Pine and violinist and composer Earl Minian talking about their brand new recording of Dependent Arising. You can get details on her upcoming performance with the Phoenix Symphony at phoenixsymphony.org or hear more from their latest album at rachelbartonpine.com. I'm Melissa Green. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Heart of the Arts.